I think part of the the practice of spiritual timekeeping is coming to a place where I accept that this life that I've been thrown into, this life that's been thrown my way, is one that has been thrown to me by a God who is with me in all of it. And so you sort of embrace the contingency, and you are also embracing, for lack of a better word right now, let's say limitation. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. James K.A. Smith is a philosopher and a professor at Calvin University. He's also the editor-in-chief of Image, a quarterly journal at the intersection of art, faith, and mystery. His work has been especially formative for me. His new book is How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now. In this episode, Jamie Smith and I talk about Ecclesiastes, no winness, and celebrating the fact that we are thrown into the world. James K. Smith, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Uh, It's great to be back talking with you. Thanks so much. Yeah, I love your new book, How to Inhabit Time. Um, Just so insightful, so helpful. Um, And, you know, we're not going to be able to get through everything I want to talk about uh, in our 40 minutes or so, but we'll do the best we can. Uh, This is not a book about time management. Inhabiting time is not managing time. what is this instead of a time management book what is it yeah um so it's right because i i i think um it's funny how many christian books on time still sort of accept its commodification Hmm. and imagine that it's something to master Whereas I guess I'm advocating what I call a kind of spiritual timekeeping, which is mostly about recognizing that um, we are the sorts of creatures who are temporal. That is like, it's, it's really about coming to accept our temporality, our mortality, the, the fact that we are immersed in histories shaped by our past pulled towards a future and and so in that sense it's actually i think in many ways about letting go of this penchant for mastery and learning how to receive the gifts that come to us because we are conditioned by time mm-hmm. yeah i mean I, I, I it seems I don't know if typical is the right word, but but the idea that because we are made for eternity, somehow we need to transcend time or our, our faith is a is something that helps us to transcend time or requires us to transcend time. And you're saying not, not yet. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And and there's well, and and maybe we, we could talk about eschatology, because I, I'm I might say maybe never we transcend time, but because okay. we'd have to think about the nature of eternity. My my book's not really t- very interested in the sort of metaphysical questions about what time is and our what the that eternal future looks like. I would say this. I actually think this grows out of my sort of career-long desire to think through the implications of the goodness of creation, Mm -hmm. the goodness of creaturehood. And if you think of, you know, those, those announcements and pronouncements in Genesis one and two, where God 
calls the cosmos into being and then announces it as very good right mm-hmm. affirms it as the good affirms our creaturehood well when god calls the cosmos into existence ex nihilo from nothing he also kind of starts the clock right like he actually creates time yes. so i think that that affirmation of the way we experience temporality and our in a sense our mortality is just kind of bound up with being a creature and god affirms that in fact, in the mystery of the incarnation, God himself enters the conditions of time. I mean, that's the really, really remarkable mystery and miracle at the heart of the Christian faith. So I think um, I think you're right that if we dig down, I think there are a lot of sort of spiritualized penchants to escape our creaturehood. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of people mm-hmm. end up sort of construing holiness as if we're trying to become angels. Mm-hmm. But I don't think God's invitation to live into that Trinitarian life is ever an invitation to become less than human. It's an invitation to experience the fullness of being human. But the fullness of being human is a life that is lived in history uh, um, mm-hmm. throughout time, um, uh, experiencing seasons. And I, I think. What does it look like to receive that as a good thing, as a gift? Mm-hmm. You mentioned at uh, one one point, you know, when Faulkner says the past is never dead; it's not even past. Yeah, um, that seems especially relevant to what you're talking about here. You know that, that we are we are formed and shaped by a past that circums well circumscribes that, that certainly creates some boundaries is is to what we can yeah. do, what what we are able to do, what we want to do, our motivations. Um, and so the past is, uh, and I, I think you, you may be, this may be from Baldwin, James Baldwin, the, the idea that, that the um, uh, history isn't so much a matter, the, the interesting thing about history is not the past, but the, the way it shapes the present and, and conditions our future. Exactly. So I I think this is one really, really crucial feature of our creaturely temporality is that we to be human means we are not hatched (laughs) and 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 you are not uh, to be human means that who I am, this Jamie is um, formed. Uh, and that formation is significantly a product of what I have undergone, what I have experienced. My mm-hmm. my my biography, if you will, my history, my uh, um, the sort of litany of things that that constitute my past are all part of the the way the potter has shaped me, mm-hmm. and it's also why I'm my singularity, my uniqueness is because it's so bound up with, I mean, you, Jonathan, have not lived my story. I have not lived your story. And so there's something utterly distinct about that. And who I am is a product of that past. But what that means is my past, my history is not actually what's behind me. It's more like what I carry, 
It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's born in me and by me. And it's why I keep carrying my past forward with me. I could not, I, I can't not live into a future except because the past and my experiences and the gifts that I've received have, as you, as you know, sort of given me possibilities Mm-hmm. for living mm-hmm. out a life. And that's the 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 James Baldwin uh piece in the early part of the book. I think Baldwin was just so incisive in in calling us to recognize and confront that reality. It's easy to live and pretend as if we were hatched, as if we didn't bear these histories and habits actually mm-hmm. within us. One of the one of the most significant things that my history hands down to me is actually habits of being. But if I'm not aware that those are the product of a historical formation, I might imagine that they're just kind of like natural mm-hmm. when in fact they've been learned mm-hmm. and maybe some of them have to be unlearned. And can be unlearned because they're, they aren't inherent. Exactly. Exactly. Which is, which is why um, I think a big part. So yes, it's not about time management. It is about a kind of cultivating an awareness of how we are shaped by time. I think the first moment of that and the fundamental moment of that is reckoning with the fact that we are these historical creatures, that things have been, that that habits of possibility have been handed down to us. Um, And uh, that, that is the beginning then of a new intentionality about how I want to live into the future. This is why I I, I really hope, I, I don't know if others will experience it this way, but I do think that this new book, How to Inhabit Time, is kind of still an outworking of what I was trying to do in You Are What You Love, which is about mm-hmm. the spiritual power of habit. Mm-hmm. And I think this is now taking the temporality of that seriously. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, as far as the gift, you know, time is a gift and time not just as, as a limitation or as a uh, as an unfortunate fact of human existence. Um, you, you cite Augustine, you know, on the on the matter. This Shocker. I'm Big uttering, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, this <laughs> sentence that I'm uttering doesn't can't be a sentence except that one word goes away and is replaced by the next word. And. That's where the meaning comes from, is the, the, the words passing through time, um, because we, we, you know. Exactly. We and he's, know and he exercises. That's right. And, and music. Think of how many of us love music. And in fact, music is impossible without time. Yeah, music is the music as we experience it is impossible without that elongation and elasticity of our soul's capacity to both sort of remember what we just heard, but then keep receiving something new. And the way a harmony and a chord and a melody works actually requires your listening soul to be able to stretch out beyond just the present moment, receiving something, recalling it, it's held, and yet you're also welcoming the next note, the next bar, and uh, think, and so it's, sometimes I I wonder, uh, well, this this is kind of what I always say we can't talk about in class with my students. I usually say, 
when I'm teaching philosophy, there are two things we're not going to talk about angels and animals, because they're always sort of exceptions to the rule. But you almost <laughs> wonder, can angels really experience music? Can angels really experience music if they don't have bodies to inhabit time? But we'll leave that as a little sort of Zen cone to, for people yeah. to think about later. And how else can they pluck their harps if they don't have? Right, right, right. <laughs> um, All those Italian frescoes are a lie. <laughs> uh, okay, can we talk about thrownness? Hi, so Heidegger, yeah. there's a... I can't say the word. I don't know if you can, but but the the word that that gets oh the German word the German word. Yeah, it's such a but, such yeah. a great German word. <laughs> but thrownness, the idea that we find yes. ourselves kind of thrown into a world we didn't make, you know, with things thrown into our world that we didn't invite, and I mean, I, I, you. Actually, I'm going to let you define thrownness. Well, no, no, no. You, I, I'm so I'm. It's really encouraging to me that you found that a sort of intriguing and maybe illuminating notion. Because I, I, um, as you know, in the book, I, I'm still kind of committed to this notion of philosophy as spiritual counsel. Mm -hmm. And so I do ask people to just put their thinking caps on a little bit, do a little bit of philosophy, because then I think it has philosophical and but spiritual riches to, to bear for us. So Martin Heidegger talks about this notion of thrownness. And the idea is it's like you sort of you you wake up and you realize all the contingencies that got you to where you are, right? And <laughs> contingencies that even precede your own life. Sure. And it could have gone a million other ways, but that's not the way it went. This is the life that you've been handed. This is the hand you've been dealt. And I, I think, I don't, I hope some people aren't like anxious about that term because it might, it doesn't mean that it's random, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's arbitrary. It just means that it's contingent. And uh, um, specific and particular, and I think part of the the practice of spiritual timekeeping is coming to a place where I accept that this life that I've been thrown into, this life that's been thrown my way, is one that has been thrown to me by a God who is with me in all of it. And so you sort of embrace the contingency, and you are also embracing for lack of a better word right now, let's say limitation, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're, you're embracing the fact that the, the possibilities that have been handed down to you reflect this particular history you've been thrown into. Yeah. And I don't mean to pretend that that isn't easy. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, I think it can be, um, I, I don't mean to pretend it is easy rather. It's, it's, I think this is part of a spiritual struggle is you, you get to maybe, especially I wonder, Jonathan, if this felt like a very midlife book to you, it, it felt like a midlife book as I was <laughs> yeah. writing it. And, and it is intriguing. You just get to places in your life and you're, and you, you start to actually see that there were other ways that things could have gone. Mm -hmm. Right. And you, or, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, you see colleagues or you see people who you admire and they're sort of doing things. And you're like, Oh man, I wish I could be doing that. And you're sort of what you're doing is you're saying, I, I, I'm saying, I wish that was my story. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that we work through in accepting our mortality is okay. 
but that's not your story. So mm-hmm. this is what's been thrown my way. What does it look like for me to be faithful with this hand? Yeah. What does it look like for me to be faithful? And knowing that God actually has rich possibilities that he wants to realize in me. I, I, I hope that's how people it will will sort of hear that notion of thrownness. Yeah. And you say shame looks at my th- regrets my throne my throne is looks back and says here's what was thrown my way and i and i regret that and i guess grace help me out with that distinction because i'm I'm now a little bit yeah how you made that distinction between shame and grace so um can i back up just a little bit because i i think one of the ways i talk about shame which which i think is just such an ungospeled dare i say anti-christ dynamic. Do you know what I mean? I think it's the very antithesis of the gospel. I think shame is a way of looking at your past that is sort of like nostalgia and negative. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is now you look back and you're sort of fixated on this past that's been thrown your way. And you you it it breeds in you a self-loathing because you're not that in that story or you you didn't live this life or you lost out on this and i think shame is a way of sort of fixating on a past as if the god who redeems all things can't take any story and make of it a beautiful work of art and so i think grace Shame, shame is kind of, it, it's such a stunted, reductionistic way of thinking about my story. And it sort of wants to rewind the tape so I could do it over. Mm-hmm. If things, that's, that would be the only way that I could really find fullness and flourishing and happiness is, is I would have to uh, uh, rewind the tape. And I can't do that. And so now I just resent it. And I, mm-hmm. I kind of loathe who I was. Whereas I think grace is something even more miraculous and mysterious, which is that God can take up even the particularities of my history, even with its wounds, Mm -hmm. and throw me into a future that I could not have imagined by the grace of God in which I find the fullness of my humanity. So so that's why in, in the book I talk about the difference between shame and grace is really like the difference between imagining a reset button, which is not what redemption and salvation are, but instead seeing this is about resurrection. And we know from the first fruits of Jesus resurrection that even the risen one bears the scars. And I think that's the miracle of grace that, that God can renew and restore a life, our throne history in which we, we still show the scars, the wounds, the mark, but now we are a new creation and God is going to unleash things in us almost because I've lived that history. Mm-hmm. Like God is going to deploy that history in some unique way. Yeah. The uh, formulation, if you don't mind me quoting yourself back to you, uh, is uh, uh, when the distinct amalgam of my history, including its traumas and wounds, intersects with the renewing power of the spirit, a chemical reaction of possibility awaits. That possibility is a calling. Yeah. And that's that's a really powerful (laughs) way of thinking about it. I'd never, 
um, I've never thought about calling as kind of an inversion of shame. But, you know, the shame says I got stuck in this situation and I regret it. And and calling says that situation is what equips and and sort of forms the boundary lines of, of what I can do going forward. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And so there's there are such unique possibilities that God wants to unleash in me precisely because I have lived that history. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I hope uh, I hope people would would find that a liberating uh, truth so that you can, uh, you don't have to, of course, none of this is about sort of wallowing in our past. It's at, instead receiving our past in God's grace as something that can launch new possibilities. Yeah. Um, and living because ultimately this is this is not about looking back. This is about living forward. Uh huh. Yeah. Now, of course, this is a, a podcast for and about, you know, for writers about the, the writing and the creative process. So uh, the things you've been talking about are relevant to everybody. But I, I want to think about some of the specifics of the way this plays out in doing creative work. And um, at this point in your book, I was thinking about. You know, when Flannery O'Connor and she, she, this was sort of a negative formulation, but she says, you can choose what you want to write, but you don't get to choose what you're able to make live. Mm-hmm. That's the negative mm-hmm. way of saying, find out what you're able to make live and go write that and go do that. And you're, I, I think she was talking about some of these same ideas that your particular history, your particular, the, the things you've experienced, the things you've read, the the habits that you've lived into, um, they shape, that's not just a, that's not just a limit. I mean, it is a limitation, but as you embrace that limitation, you kind of know where to go next. I, exactly. Yeah. You know I love that. I, I'm I not going to write Paradise way. Lost. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to yes. write something. And else. the limit, instead of thinking of it as as just in the negative connotation of a limitation, think of it now as sort of guardrails that channel me in a direction. So now I sort of know, oh, this is my corner of the field to till. <laughs> because otherwise, if you don't have those those kind of like channels to 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 guardrail us towards our calling. If you just have limitless possibility, actually you end up paralyzed, right? And you you don't know sort of where to go or who to be. I, I love that you're you're thinking this through in terms of creativity and the creative process, because I think this is um, maybe one way to think about this is every writer, every artist, every creator uh, is is I think needs to embody a style. Mm-hmm. For you know, and I mean that in a, in a very, very pregnant sense. But your style, whatever it is going to be, is the signature of the life that you have lived. Mm-hmm. Your style is ultimately kind of the condensation of a biography. Mm-hmm. It's not just about formal methods that you've learned. And and I I, I hope folks would experience that as liberating because. It means you don't have to just imitate what others are doing. You can invent. <laughs> yeah. And you have something to invent because 
your particular amalgam of experiences and histories uh, um, and what you have undergone have been a crucible and a forge and they and they are waiting to be realized in your creativity in a in a way that is like a signature it's kind of utterly unique to you yeah yeah as, as you say um the horizons that circumscribe you are not fencing you out of something but entrusting you to this field of possibility what's thrown your way is what you can do yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it's exactly really and to know what it. i can do Yes. Yes. Uh, Although, again, uh, and again, I, 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 um, I agree with uh, exactly. I also want to name. I think it is an achie- I think it is a spiritual achievement to the get to the place of receiving that as a gift. Mm-hmm. And I think it's. I would even say this because you know later in the book I talk about seasons in a life. I think it is not uncommon and probably not even unnatural and. Um, maybe not even a problem that it's, it's probably very common for young creative folks to keep bumping up against that. Do you know what I mean? Pushing again, kicking against the goads a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I feel like that's okay for a season. Like you almost, mm-hmm. you almost have to have the experience of kicking against the limitations to get to a place where you can actually receive them as the gift that they are in a, in a, in a sort of new maturity. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And, and as I think we've already touched on this idea, you've, you have habits that have been formed forever. You, I think it's, is it Husserl? I'm saying his name, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Habitualities. Yes. Um, And, and those habitualities that, that do create some boundaries for us. Um, habits can change, you know, it, even people our age, our habits can change. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And that's, I, I think um, that's why we're always living into possibility and mm-hmm. we're, you know, you can never, uh, I think to be a resurrection people means you, you almost can never take the present and merely extrapolate it as the future because mm-hmm. there are just always latent possibilities that can be realized and my habits can change i can adopt new intentionality to unlearn habits that i realize are bad ones i can give myself over to new communities of practice that help me to cultivate new ones there are always we our hearts and souls are never petrified yeah. as long as we are living this life and um it's it's a life i i think the 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 synergy of grace and possibility is something that we do well to recover mm. yeah so can you say just maybe just a couple of sentences about the interplay between this idea of acknowledging our limits if that's if that's the, the best word here and at the same time embracing the truth that we can change. Both yeah. of which happen through time, through the process of time. Yes. So, and I would say, I would say, um, what you will experience, what's needed at that intersection, then, of on the one hand, ex- recognizing possibilities are handed down, mm-hmm. but also realizing that to live into a future is to live into possibility. 
I think the the way uh, sort of spiritual timekeeping works itself out is patience, <laughs> right? So, so, and that's, I mean, that maybe sounds so banal and simple and uh, the, that it's almost trite, but I actually think it's really, really countercultural mm. in American culture that we don't expect instant fixes, mm-hmm. right? You realize that, oh, okay, if I, if part of my reckoning with my past is I also become aware of, I'm confronted by disordered habits that I need mm-hmm. to unlearn. Mm-hmm. I also need to kind of relinquish the quick fix mentality, which imagines, well, now I know it, therefore I can immediately be different. Mm-hmm. No, that's <laughs> the poor, the perdurance, the endurance of of those habits is long and and so it it requires a patience of us to i think that realize that um you know god plays a very long game <laughs> and uh 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 thankfully god is way more patient than we are uh and i i think to accept that it takes time to change um is its own gift yeah Okay. You're and, and also related to this idea, I think, is the idea that we live in multiple times. You know, yeah. multiple stories. Yeah, in a, right. yes. yeah. And so um and there's some built-in irony and some ironic distance built into the to our lives and and you know, especially the lives of Christian people. I think there's some built-in irony and uh as you say at one point in your book. You know, Abraham Lincoln was able to uh, sort of rethink his situation and, and was able to, to to reframe his exceedingly difficult you know, immediate circumstances because he was living in another story too, which again, you know, yes. an ironic distance. Yes, there. Um, you say that you know. Uh, you said that the motto for your book could have been, um, and you've got this from Ronald Niebuhr, consciousness of an ironic situation tends to dissolve it, which I think might be relevant to to, to this idea yeah. right here. Yes. But I'm going to need some help with that. Con- yes. Yeah, sure. I think that's the motto right. of this book, but I'm thinking that doesn't, <laughs> your motto yeah, is it's a little- in the book. <laughs> So, so if you can talk me through that, that would yeah. be a help to me. Consciousness of an ironic yes. situation tends to dissolve it. So Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr, who who I think is is ripe for recovery in our imagination these days, um, he, he's really going back to kind of ancient Greek categories here, right? And he's sort of saying, is, is the American uh, experiment a comedy? Is it a tragedy or is it an irony? And and he settles on saying it's actually an ironic situation because for him, an ironic situation is one in which we find ourselves kind of in a catch-22. We find ourselves in a bind, mm-hmm. but we are the ones who got us there. <laughs> you know? So, so uh, um, you know, we, we find ourselves with in a situation where it might look like it looks like a tragic situation because it looks like you can't make any purely good choice. Mm-hmm. But the difference there's, is there's Abraham Lincoln situation. 
Exactly. And, yeah. and so now, but it's, but then you realize what got you there were your own decisions in the past, okay. right? Like, like, uh, um, so then for, for Niebuhr, what's, what's, um, maybe the most debilitating is when you don't even recognize that you're in such a situation. And he would say, you know, then you're, then you're just sort of blithely working out of this kind of naivete and you don't even see your situation. That's why I think, you know, I keep emphasizing reckoning with our past is sort of the first moment of spiritual timekeeping. And then when he says, consciousness of an ironic situation tends to dissolve it. What he means is, if you can sort of undergo this work of reflection and get to a place where you can sort of see that and recognize it and say, oh, wait a second, wait a second, I'm not a victim here. Mm -hmm. Actually, I see the series of decisions that got me to this situation. <laughs> now, that doesn't change the fact that I'm in this situation, but I see now why I got. And I think he, what, what Niebuhr is suggesting is that awareness is not the solution, but it's the beginning mm -hmm. of starting to live differently into the future. And, and that I, the reason why I think that's kind of a motto for the book is if people come to how to inhabit time sort of looking for tips and tricks and formulas to change your life they will be as you know very frustrated um but if if you realize that sort of the beginning of living differently is cultivating this awareness of our situation mm -hmm. well then i guess that's what i'm inviting people into and that's that's its own hard work it's a very kind of it requires a contemplative standpoint and posture and exercise. Um, but, but I agree with Niebuhr that I think if you can cultivate the capacity to recognize your situation, that's sort of the beginning then of being able to be intentional of how to change it going forward. Mm -hmm. Does that does that help? Does that unpack it a little? Yeah, bit yeah, yeah, it does. And now I'm wondering if I was misusing it, but the the your motto by trying to apply it to what you were saying about um, about Abraham Lincoln. Um, no, he thinks. I mean, because because Niebuhr himself sees that in Lincoln's second inaugural address that that in a way uh, um, it's it's because. Lincoln's own theological convictions could get him to a standpoint where he could look on the American situation with different eyes, uh -huh. right? He could, in a way he could become, he, he could, uh, um, he wasn't just fully admired in the situation. He was gifted with the possibility of reflecting on yeah. the situation in light of God's story. And then that's what engenders sort of new possibilities going forward, all of which are difficult and, you know, heartbreaking. And yet it at least sort of charted a possible path. And I think yeah. that's what we're talking about. Yeah. 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 And I think um, that's so important to the work of a writer to to sort of step back from the the blur of what's going on around and say, well, okay, let's reframe. Let's let's think about the bigger story this is a part of. Um, Absolutely. And the rest of us need writers to do that. I mean, I, I think in a way, the vocation of the writer in a civilization and a culture 
is to be, you know, there's almost, there's a hint of a kind of monastic parallel of mm -hmm. what society needs for the writer, right? If you think of that, that sort of classic picture of, of the monastic communities were not retreats from the world for the sake of themselves. They were actually uh, um, giving themselves over to this sort of very intentional, what looked like otherworldly practice for the sake of the world. Yeah. And I, I think that's the writer's calling. I think the writer needs to be the one who can find a way to step back, to reflect, to uh, become conscious and aware of the situation so that they can help us. They become a catalyst for yeah. our own awareness. Yeah, that's good. All right. Before we run out of time, I'm not going to have a a, uh, a clever segue. We're just going to change topics here. All right. OK. I want to talk Great. about Ecclesiastes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Ecclesiastes is a, is a recurring theme. You have these little meditations in, in various parts of the book about Ecclesiastes. And man, I, I just love the things that you have to say about that and, and the idea oh, of learning to love what's going to go away. <laughs> learning to love the ephemeral and and not regret the ephemerality of the world, but say this is this is just the way the world is. And so, um, as you say, in in Ecclesiastes, that idea that life is a vapor, which sometimes is is translated as life is uh, vanity or meaningless. Um, as you said, it's it's just um, to say that it. And I guess the the Hebrew word is Abel. Abel. Yes. Yes. Um, yep. It's not to say that it's meaningless. It's to say only that it's elusive and it's hard to manage, and. Um, we don't need to resent that reality, but uh, we should face it. And and um, I think it's I think it's Peter Lightheart that you're that you're borrowing from. Yes, we, very much. We don't chase after the wind, but we do shepherd the wind and we raise a sail. Yes. And, uh, yeah. And then I'm thinking about taking up cross stitching so I can cross stitch this on a pillow from your book. I, I, my favorite <laughs> line from your whole book is oh. embody spirits like us live on breath. Vapor is living water, too. And so for Ecclesiastes to say life is a breath. All right. Life is a breath. I need breath. That's yeah. that vapor is living water. Yeah. Man, that is I love it. Um, Thank you so much. That's really encouraging. I, I don't don't you think um, I think a lot of Christians don't know quite what to do with the book of Ecclesiastes sometimes because it seems sort of ruthless mm -hmm. in some ways, right? And despairing. And But the reason why I was drawn to it is because I actually think it's one of those places in the scriptures where you see the teacher doing what I'm trying to invite people to do which is reckon with our mortality reckon with our temporality mm -hmm. but but that only looks sort of despairing if you're still caught up in the notion of like getting sky hooked and out of history by the escape pod you know mm -hmm. into some sort of sold disembodied future whereas i, I think ecclesiastes is um it's a deeply existential encounter with our finitude with our creaturehood yeah. I think it's a long meditation on our creaturehood and to this notion of, you know, learning to love what you'll lose. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, I, 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 not all losses are tragic. 
Yeah. Some are, I right? I don't I don't yeah. mean to to you know there are there are losses that are disruptions and rend the cosmos for us and they are they are are tragic losses. But there are, there's a kind of loss that is part of just sort of the the arc of living a life across time, you know? So I can do I experience the loss of my kids toddler years? Yes, sure. Mm-hmm. But it would be almost kind of idolatrous i think to cling to them as if that was the only time that i could have experienced the joy of being a father and if i had done that i would have never missed out on the utter joy of you know sitting with your 30 year old kids and just having an absolute blast because you've you've turned out you gave birth to your best friends uh there's there's something about learning how it's natural you 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 kind of receive these gifts with an open hand and you receive them gratefully but you're not clinging to them. I think that's part of the the principle of spiritual timekeeping. Yeah, and I uh, I, I love what you say about you know when your wife puts a, a a thing of flowers on your desk, you have a choice. You can say, "Well, this this sucks. These flowers are going to die, and then they're going to smell bad whenever they die." Yeah. Or you can say, "Look at these flowers that I'm enjoying right now." Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There's something, and it's 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 not you know. It's not quite live in the moment the way I think culture talks about it. There's a different posture there, which is to say, I know that in each of these moments, God is giving me something to be responsible for now, to care for now, to receive now, to enjoy now. And I know that same God is always with me. This is Emmanuel that we're talking about. And I, I don't know what the next season looks like, but I know that there will be new gifts that, mm-hmm. that my open hands will keep receiving. Yeah. I love it. Um, all right. We might need to, to start wrapping this thing up. I hate to. Um, wow. Time flies. Yeah, I know. Uh, Ironically. Do you, would you tell me a, a few writers who make you want to write before we wrap up? Once you, you read it and you're like, I'm going to go write. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let's see, who have I been really sort of energized by as a writer lately? Um, so, uh, you know, a writer like um, Abraham Joshua Heschel is somebody who intrigues me a lot because I think he is he writes beautiful prose, but he is also someone who's writing kind of at this intersection I'm trying to have it between sort of philosophy theology and sort of spiritual endeavors mm-hmm. um the uh, another that has been top of mind lately is frederick beekner is mm-hmm. just yeah. uh, and that will be unsurprising and almost yeah. cliche but i i, I beekner is really sort of a, a north star for me in terms of both sentences the beauty mm-hmm. of sentences mm-hmm. but also a sort of spiritual tenor uh, yeah. that I, that I think I really appreciate. Um, yeah, that's a couple. Yeah. Well, thanks. Well, let's wrap up there. Uh, James, Great. thank you so much for being here. This is, this has been a, a huge blessing for me and a lot of fun. No, I really appreciate it, Jonathan. Thank you. And, and, um, I, I love the threads you're pulling in it. So glad to, glad to have a conversation. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. 
To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.